We'll be looking at uh, Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7, if you'd like to, to go ahead and find your way there. Nehemiah chapter 7. It has been said that the world would be a great place if it wasn't for all the people. If the truth be told, most of the problems that we face in life are really at the heart of them people problems. And I believe that most people at some point in time have struggled with feelings of whether or not their life is really worthwhile. And if we think about it, our life goes by so fast. It may seem like a long time, but in reality, it's not. And if you're like me, perhaps you ask yourself, what am I accomplishing that really matters? What am I doing with my life that will last beyond me? How can I spend my life so that it actually counts for something worthwhile? And of course, the answer to those questions is to spend our lives for God's glory and for His purpose. Because if our life counts for God and His purpose, then it does not just count for time, but it counts for eternity. So how can I live so that my life actually counts for God? And I believe Nehemiah chapter 7 has the answer for us. And I believe that a part of that is to live a life that perseveres, that perseveres with people as we see in Nehemiah 7. A young American engineer was sent to Ireland by his company to work in a new electronics plant. It was a two-year assignment that he had accepted because it would enable him to earn enough money uh, to marry his longtime girlfriend. She had a job near her home in Tennessee, and they planned to pool their resources and put a down payment on a house when he returned. They corresponded often, but as the lonely weeks went by, she began expressing doubts that he was being faithful to her, exposed as he was to calmly Irish lasses. The young engineer wrote back, declaring with some passion that he was paying absolutely no attention to the local girls. I admit, he wrote, that sometimes I'm tempted, but I fight it. I'm keeping myself for you. And the next mail, the engineer received a package. It contained a note from his girl and a harmonica. I'm sending this to you, she wrote, so you can learn to play it and have something to take your mind off those girls. The engineer replied, thanks for the harmonica. I'm practicing it on every, or I'm practicing on it every night and thinking of you. At the end of his two-year stint, the engineer was transferred back to the company headquarters. He took the first plane to Tennessee to be reunited with his girl. He, her whole family was with her, but as he rushed forward to embrace her, she held up a restraining hand and said sternly, Just hold on there a minute, Billy Bob, before any serious kissing and hugging gets started here. Let me hear you play that harmonica. Our love for the Lord will be tested in our lives. And the proof of our love 
is seen in our perseverance. This chapter serves as a pivot for the book of Nehemiah. Chapters 1 through 6 are a description of the restoration of the wall. And chapters 8 through 13 talk about the restoration of the people. Chapter 7 starts with these three verses describing the precautions that Nehemiah took to guard the city against attack. And then it wraps up the first half of the book. Verses 4 through 73 look forward to the reforms of the second half of the book by showing how Nehemiah went about repopulating the city. So let's look at the chapter. I'm not going to read the entirety of chapter 7. So, so uh, some of you are like, oh, he's going to have to go through these more names, right? In fact, I almost titled the sermon, More Names, because there are a lot of names in chapter 7. And um, if you remember last time I, I struggled and somebody said, how many times did you practice reading that chapter? And I think it was like 10 or 15 and I listened to it multiple times so I could get the names right and I did my best, but, but uh, I didn't do that this time. So we are going to look at Nehemiah chapter 7, but uh, we will look at it a little bit differently. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we look at verses 1 through 6 and then we skip down through to verse 64 and read through the end of the chapter. Nehemiah chapter 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. And then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, skipping down to verse 60. Four. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of, most, of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thumium should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. Their donkeys, 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. 
And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 miners of silver, and 67 priests' garments. And so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning and as we see the perseverance of your people, may we too be encouraged to persevere. Lord, speak to us for your servants are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is the same list of names that's found in the book of Ezra, but there are variations. I'm not going to get into all of the arguments about, about uh, why there are variations and that sort of thing. They are different, and I will say this. The doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture asserts that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts, and everything that we possess is copies of the original manuscripts. That does not change the message of Nehemiah chapter 7 which I contend deals with persevering with people. So first thing I want us to see coming from Nehemiah chapter 7 is positions that are appointed. Positions appointed. The walls are done. The doors have been hung. This was only a prelude to the real work of establishing a community in which faith was alive and real. The walls were necessary for the purpose of protection and a sense of identity But what really mattered was the state of the people's hearts. The whole point of redemption is to bring sinners into a place where God is worshipped in a manner that God has prescribed for him to be worshipped. Remembering that God's glory is the chief end of man. Church building programs can dominate the life of the church, causing them to miss the point. We can become enamored with the building itself. We can uh, become enamored with stained glass windows and architecture and the excitement of a building fund. If you've ever been in a church that's that's, uh, building a new building, there's all kinds of excitement around a building fund. The joy of watching the Lord provide to, to be able to build that new building. It's all exciting. But our gaze can't stop at the qualities of the building. If all we do in the end is admire brick and mortar, we've failed miserably at the main thing. If all they were going to do is sit back and admire the wall that they had built, they would have failed miserably. We were created for the praise and glory of God. And without that, we will never be fulfilled. Nehemiah knew this, and he saw it with clarity and focus. Now that the building work is done, it's time to reform the spiritual life of the community. What they needed was a public display of godly worship. And in order for that to happen, attention had to be given to practical needs. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he appoints positions of leadership. He gives specific direction for running the city. These were men that Nehemiah could trust would do the job. Now, it's interesting that one of the first things that Nehemiah does is to get God's people ready for worship. He begins by appointing 
and administration to organize the people in the house of God. There are three groups of people that are mentioned here. Before we look at them, notice that Nehemiah shared leadership. He shared leadership. Nehemiah realized that he couldn't do everything on his own, that he needed to take some of the burden and the oversight off his shoulders and let others help bear the load. Let me tell you what I know about delegation that I believe Nehemiah exhibits here. First, there must be a willingness to delegate. If delegation is going to happen, the person that's delegating must have a willingness to delegate. Otherwise, delegation won't happen. We can talk about delegation until we're blue in the face, but unless there's a willingness to delegate, we will never delegate. Secondly, delegation involves trust. And what I mean is that you trust those that you've appointed to the task, that they're going to do what you're delegating them to do, that they're going to be committed to what you're asking them to do. Nehemiah understood this, and it was time for him to appoint kind of this middle management team. And this team consisted of, as we saw, security, singers, and servants. So first, let's look at security. Gatekeepers were appointed. Their work was to guard the entrance of the gates of the temple, and they are now on guard duty at the city gates. They would carry their same duties with them as they guarded the gates. In in other words, they secured the gates, and they vetted those that entered, deciding who would be admitted and who would be prohibited from entering in. Those who had a legitimate reason to be there would be allowed in. Those who did not have a legitimate reason would not be allowed in. Now let me just say, as believers, we could learn a lot from this and the idea of being vigilant in our watchfulness. And I'm not saying that we don't allow people into church, but what I am saying is that we should be watchful as to who our church allows to be members of the church. There is a constant danger that the enemy seeks to infiltrate the church and get a foothold among God's people. And so often in the church, we don't have a guard against that. And we should have some sort of guard against that. Next, we have the singers, right? So they were essential. They were essential part of the worship service in the temple. Music is is significant. It's a significant part of of the worship service. It's not the central part, but it's a substantial part. Now they're put on guard duty, and having the temple choir on guard duty would indicate that the focus of the city is on the worship. Is on worship of God. I'm not going to get into a big long diatribe here on hymns versus praise choruses like some people want to do. The most significant part of music is the lyrics. The lyrics. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, do the lyrics speak the truth about God? As Jesus indicated. John chapter 4, verse 23, when he said, The Father is seeking those that worship in spirit, right, and in truth. So you can see why the lyrics are, are vital to any song. Is what I'm singing truth? Am I speaking truth back to God? Am I singing this worship to God 
and the lyrics I'm singing to God, is it true? That's why they had to prepare their heart for worship and spirit, and it should be theologically correct in truth. It's the way we should also worship. Lastly, we see the servants, the Levites, were responsible for the care of the temple. The ceremonies and the teaching of God's word. They worked as a team. They glorified God and ministered to the people. The purpose of the servant is to point others to God. At this point, the temple had been neglected for a hundred years or so. And there was a lot of work that would need to be done to properly have services again. So we, so we have the positions appointed with Nehemiah sharing leadership, having security and singers and Levites or servants as all part of that security. Now let's see the personnel that's assigned. The personnel that's assigned. Nehemiah set Hanani and Hananiah in charge of the day-to-day administration in government. We've seen Hanani before, right? Reference in uh, verse 2 indicating that it was his brother provides the possibility that he was indeed Nehemiah's brother. That's supported by Hanani's appearance in chapter 1 when he was the lead delegate in the initial visit to Susa and brought news to Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, that things were desperate in Jerusalem. Appointing him to a position of administration might have seemed like nepotism, but given the climate of suspicion about Nehemiah's leadership, having someone in charge who he could trust was essential, especially as he prepares to head back to Babylon. Without Hanani's visit to Susa, In the first place, none of Nehemiah's work would have been possible. Hananiah's fellow administrator, Hananiah, is described as the governor of the castle. Now, let me say that this is a vital principle. Someone must be in charge. They have to be. To be organized and be effective, there must be a leader that's actually in charge charge when there is no clear defined leader or no clear defined leadership people will flounder or what what typically happens is someone will assume they are in charge right so nobody's in charge i just assume i'm in charge god is a god of order not a god of chaos And his sovereign wisdom does things in order. We would do well to take notice and try to at least do the same as God does and have leadership, people that are actually in charge. Now, there's two qualifications that are mentioned here for people that are in charge, right? So qualification number one is that they are faithful to God. So if somebody's going to be in charge, he says they need to be faithful to God. The Hebrew word for faithful means reliable, truthful, and firm. Hananiah was a man that that you could depend on. He spoke the truth, and if he promised to do something you want, might as well consider it done. If you want your life to count for God, then work at being faithful. This idea of faithfulness is a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us as we walk in dependence on God. All of us are stewards of the gifts of God. Of, of time and, and money and all other gifts that God has given to us. Paul made it clear that it is required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Let me tell you something else that faithfulness is essential to. That is relationships. In other words, if you do not trust someone, then you're not going to get close to them and you keep your distance, right? Because you are afraid that they will take something that you have said and they will disclose it to other people, perhaps even distort it. If you sense that someone is not truthful, then you don't trust them and you don't get close to them. Now, our God is a faithful God. God always speaks truth. God always keeps his word. And as we grow in godliness, guess what? We should grow in faithfulness because we worship God. If someone is not faithful, that would be a reliable indicator that they are also not godly because they are not walking with God who is faithful. Let me quickly give you four ways to work on faithfulness I found this week when I was doing some reading. First, know and define the responsibilities that God has given you. Know and define the responsibilities that God has given to you. As a Christian, you are responsible for obeying God's commands. As a husband and father, there are responsibilities you have. As a parent, you have responsibilities. As a member of the body of Christ, you have a responsibility to serve Christ. You can't be faithful if you don't know what you're supposed to do. So look at God's word and see what you're supposed to do. Know and define the responsibilities that God has given to you. Secondly, start with and refuse to neglect the small things. Start with and refuse to neglect the small things. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, that if we are faithful in little things, we will be faithful with much. In the context, he was speaking about managing money. God had entrusted to you. Do you squander your money on selfish pursuits? Or do you invest your money for wise and godly purposes? You know, I saw a meme. It said, I saved 100% on Black Friday because I didn't go shopping at all. And that, that's how I felt. I saved 100%. I stayed home and did absolutely nothing. Do you pay your bills on time? Are you honest in your financial matters? Do you keep your word? Do you live an orderly life? Do you keep your appointments on time? Start with the small things and refuse to neglect them. Third, keep your relational priorities straight. Your relationship with Christ is always to be first. If it goes, then everything else will go. Spend time with him alone every day. Your relationship with your family is next. We must order our family relationships properly. And if we do not, we are not qualified to even lead in the church. In fact, familial relationships are so vital that John says, if we don't love our brother whom we have seen, we can't love God whom we've not seen in 1 John 4.20. Last, learn to use your time more effectively. Most people who are unfaithful complain that they just don't have enough time to do what they're supposed to do. But we all have the same number of hours in each day. And I've discovered that faithful people learn to use their time well. So the first requirement was faithfulness. And then requirement number two, 
one that I'm sure everybody looks for in, in leadership is fear of God. Fear of God. Hananiah feared God above many, it said. That's a forsaken subject in our day. However, fear of God grows out of knowledge of God. When you see God for who He is and you realize who you are by the way of comparison, you fall on your face in fear, realizing that that all we deserve, all anyone deserves is an eternal hell. And that's what would be just. A proper fear of God will motivate us to obedience. Now herein lies the problem because this is not what we find popular today in the qualities of a leader. When was the last time you spoke of someone and you said, that is a God-fearing person? It would seem like we're more concerned about feelings of comfort and wholeness and, oh, they just make me feel so comfortable, you know. I just, I like the way that they, they talk and I just feel comfortable around them. And, or I, they make me feel happy. Or, or I just feel satisfied. We're, we're concerned about those. But not whether they fear God. And that, that idea has infiltrated the church when we look for leadership. So often we're not looking for someone who fears God. Instead, we look for someone that's, that's cool or someone that's wearing the latest fashion or, or we need a, what we need is someone that can really relate to people. What about godliness? That should be a requirement. Nehemiah chose leaders based on their relationship to God rather than leaders that wanted their rights and entitlements. They were God-fearing, as John Witherspoon, co-signatory of the Declaration of Independence, put it. It's only the fear of God that can deliver us from the fear of man. So we've seen the positions appointed. We've seen the personnel assigned. Now let's see the priorities affirmed. It's unclear who's speaking in verse 3, whether it's Nehemiah or Hananiah. But either way, there are some guidelines concerning the security of the city. It was normal for city gates to be opened at dawn and left open for the day. However, in this case, the order is that the gates not be opened until the sun was hot, which could mean or which would mean noon. This would seem to indicate that the gates would be open only during the midday hours when people were busy allowing for a more leisurely morning. Now, some of you probably like that. So you could sleep in and just relax in the morning, and then the gates would be open later. They were also to watch everyone's homes. Now, this could also be a command to shut the gates when the sun is hot. As some translations translate it that way. In that case, the gates would be closed when the people were napping during their siesta time. You see, the first instance is designed to keep the world outside and allow the Jews to focus on their calling as God's people. The second is designed as a safety precaution when the people were most likely to slumber. Either way, they are to be alert to the effects of the world that's outside. With Satan lurking around, you and I can't afford to be lazy. 
Now, five days later, God's going to break into their situation in a way that even Nehemiah wasn't expecting. That is when we see in uh, these remaining points, it had been nearly 100 years since Zerubbabel led the first group of captives back to Judah. So for 100 years, they've waited for this point. They've waited for this to happen. One, nearly 100 years years. So let's look at those remaining points. First, we see planning for the future. In verse 4, we're introduced to this problem that's now facing Nehemiah. The walls have been built. The city faces more secure future from our enemies. But a significant portion of the city's population wasn't living inside the city. They were living outside the walls. The city had been artificially populated by wall builders. But now the work is complete. And so the workers have been have returned to their families. And it's left the city thinly populated. Less than 10% of the population lived inside of the city. The remainder resided outside the city or in nearby towns and villages. What was the point of having a nicely newly built wall if there's no one in the city to defend? Sure, if danger came, people could run to the city and shut the gates, but the number of houses in the city was small. I mean, what about the promise that the Lord had delivered in Jeremiah chapter 31 at the close of the chapter, which is what Nehemiah is basing a lot of this on. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the promise that the city was being rebuilt for. Following that promise comes following its destruction by the Babylonians. Yes, the prophecy had been fulfilled in part when the engineers began at the Tower of Hananel and worked their way around to make repairs. But for a city to be rebuilt, it needs people in the city. So Nehemiah makes a plan for the future. A plan to repopulate the city. Now today, towns are full of controversy, right? I mean, we know that most towns have all kinds of controversy from uh, what's imminent domain and and slum development in some towns and and relocations of sections of the population of certain towns. and, And the issue is no less of a controversy in Nehemiah's day. He's engaged in city planning on large scale. It involved moving people that lived in the suburbs where green fields were and where they kept their farm animals, moving those people into the city. People that were used to having elbow room, wide open spaces, were not going to be um, having the elbow room anymore. They're now going to be in spatially challenged environment. You're now going to live beside your neighbor. 
The social standard will be threatened and perceived freedoms will be called into question. Nehemiah was engaged in city planning 101. It involved social engineering and economic strategy. Any project of this undertaking, both then and now, would require a complex strategy. In our time, half of the world's population lives in cities. By 2050, they say over 7 billion people will populate 900 cities of more than a million inhabitants. Large cities have their own challenges, right? Disease, ethnic concentration, gang mentality, unemployment, and even inhabitants of the city living in isolation and fear. Nehemiah's concern was for Jerusalem only, not other cities. Jerusalem was special, and there was a need to reoccupy Jerusalem, and it had redemptive reasons to reoccupy the city. It was one thing to build these walls and secure the city from their enemies. It's another thing to secure its future. And the best way to do that is to ensure that the people actually lived in the city. And that would require an act of self-sacrifice from the people. Having a vision for the city is a current problem for many churches that are located in urban areas. Should they retreat to the middle-class suburbia where life is good and the economy is better? Or should they tough it out in the city and face possibility of vandalism and poverty at their doors? Those are real problems that many churches face today. And the question is not an easy one to answer. And there's churches that are closing their doors every single day because they have difficulty answering that question. Nehemiah's burden is for the city of Jerusalem. The burden brought him back from Susa in the first place, and it was fed and nourished by his own sense of God's guidance in his heart. As he says so in verse 5, he says, My God put it in my heart. Nehemiah was confident and assured of his relationship with the Lord. He said, My God to him. My God was his Lord. And he's in this covenant relationship with, with, with God. He knew God personally and therefore used possessive pronouns to refer to God. But also note that Nehemiah discerned the Lord's prompting in his heart. In other words, he knew the Lord was leading him. Lack of guidance is a modern problem that, uh, today, mostly because many Christians today don't know their Bible as well as former Christians did. God guides us through his word either by direct moral principles of right and wrong or by calling us to wisely discern the best goals for our life. And the best way to achieve those goals is for His glory. And I believe that God provides a personal touch to us, often putting certain desires in our hearts, right, that will bring God glory. Now here's where I'm cautious, because far too often people will, will speak, right, and they, they will say they're being moved to something. And they will say, they heard God's voice. They'll say, God told me to do this. And I've heard many well-meaning Christians say, God told me. But God is, God told me is never a substitute for what Scripture clearly reveals to us. Or as Vadi Bakum puts it, the Lord told me is no substitute for the Bible says. Furthermore, we must also be careful about taking Scripture out of context and and assuming some sort of special significance to our particular need for circumstantial guidance in our lives. 
If we feel that God is nudging us one way or another, it should be tested thoroughly. So we should go to the scripture, and we should go to wise friends, not just those that we think will give us the answer that we want. With all that said, we must have a plan for the future. Just like Nehemiah, we must trust in our leaders to discern the Lord's prompting and be willing to follow them. But not only was there a plan for the future, there was a peaking at the past. What was it that God put on Nehemiah's heart? It was the assembly of God's people. There was Nehemiah one day going through his filing cabinet, as he liked to do, and he comes across the record of the original returnees by family under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 538 B.C., 90 years prior. You see, in planning for the future, Nehemiah had to peek at the past. Why would Nehemiah spend so much time on these old archives? Honestly, we don't fully know. One possibility is that he was contemplating a return to Susa to resume his duties as cupbearer to the king, and his commission was complete, and he has appointed Hananiah and Hananiah as provisional leadership because he was about to leave reviewing his commission, but looking at the old archival records would, would seem like the thing to do like a, for a civil servant to do to report back to his political master. could also be argued that what Jerusalem needs is a fresh start, a change. What kind of connection would there possibly be between some dusty archival record and the hope of a bright future for the city? Well, that answer is found in what kind of city this was, what kind of people they were who would inhabit the city. Jerusalem was not just an ordinary city. It was a city of God. During the years of exile, the Jews had sung, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Psalm 137, 5 and 6. God had established them as his people. He had entered into covenant with their fathers, men of the caliber of Moses. And Abraham and David, promising to them a land and a city to dwell in. Now, in one sense, the earthly city of Jerusalem was not the fulfillment of the promise. Some, like John Calvin, see in these promises references to the perpetuity of the church of the New Testament. Others, like Walter Kaiser, insist that the special, uh, specificity of these prophecies point to something more than just the church. Here's what Kaiser says. While the sheer multiplicity of the text from almost every one of the prophets is staggering, a few evangelicals insist that this pledge is to restore Israel to her land. It was fulfilled when Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah led their prospective returns from Babylon exile. But if the post-exilic returns to the land fulfilled this promised restoration predicted by the prophets... Why then did Zechariah continue to announce a still future return in Zechariah 10, 8-12? In words that were peppered with the phrases and formulas of such prophecies as Isaiah 11, 11 and Jeremiah 50, 19. Palmer Robinson also seems uh, that there's something more than just the New Testament church that suggested. He says this, 
It must not be forgotten that Israel as a nation was actually restored to the land after 70 years of captivity, just as Jeremiah had predicted in Jeremiah 29.10. The fact that this restoration did not correspond to the projected grandeur predicted by the prophets only points to fulfillment beyond anything that could be realized in this world as it is presently constituted. The description of the restored Jerusalem in these prophecies anticipates a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and the figurative perfections that will endure for eternity, not the temporal provisions of a mere 1,000 years. He continues to say his historical return to a land of promise by a small remnant 70 years after Jeremiah's prophecy encourages hope and the final return to paradise lost by the newly constituted Israel of God. As men from all nations had been dispossessed and alienated from the original creation, so now they may hope for restoration and peace, even to the extent of anticipating a land of promise sure to appear in the new creation and sure to be enjoyed by a resurrected people. One of the main objectives of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is that they both are written immediately following the exile. It was to show the returning Jews were part of a long line of covenant people. Ezra and Nehemiah needed to enforce the me- reinforce the message to their fellow Jews that they were different than all other nations. The Jews were in covenant with God, and their neighbors were not in covenant with God. And, and for now, before the Messiah has come, this meant that the center of their religious life lay in the midst of Jerusalem. Just like the Jews in Moses' day, they had experienced an exodus, and as soon as the temple was built, they celebrated the Passover together, Ezra 6, 19-22. Soon following the reading of the law, they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Nehemiah chapter 8 talks about it. So, what we have here points, points to the continuity between the temple, the city, the feasts, and these family names, it serves as a reminder that the Jews were this distinct and blessed people. They were receiving the blessings that were promised to Abraham and David. And Nehemiah is trying to get them to focus on the fact that they are a blessed people. The prayers that had been uttered by both Nehemiah and Ezra are a demonstration of a deep consciousness of their covenant relationship with God. And so we fast forward to Nehemiah chapter 9, which we will get to. And we read this, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Nehemiah is trying to get them to focus that they are a, a people that's blessed by the promises of God. And when Nehemiah prays this, there's no earthly king in Israel. And Israel's status as a covenant community under the lordship of God is even more accentuated than it had been before the exile. Now, for this reason, it would be hard to imagine a better way to underline the truth of the Jews' covenantal status as a people of God than to remind them of the names of those that had returned almost 90 years prior. Perhaps they had begun to forget the whole point 
behind the return. And it's very possible that all of those that are in the archival documents are dead. And a new generation had arrived that was prone to forget the past. In fact, it was Moses who warned the original exiles on the verge of entering the promised land that they not forget what God had done for them. Now stop and imagine with me, if you will, the effect of reminding yourself of the sacrifices that your parents or your grandparents have made for your freedom. Imagine the battles that they fought. And as we always say, freedom is never free. It's the reason that we celebrate things like Veterans Day. It is why we are aroused when we hear quotes like this, duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, and what you will be by Douglas MacArthur. Or regard your soldiers as your children, and they will follow you in the deepest valleys. Look on them as your own beloved sons, and they will stand by you even unto death, Sun Tzu. Or how about this one? After 9-11, we will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail by George W. Bush. Sometimes these quotes inspire us, and they move us. But in our postmodern age history, facts that occurred in the past seem to have little or no objective value in the present. Nehemiah is intent that the Jews not forget their history. Have you ever been to a city museum where the history of this city is on display? Nehemiah is recounting the story of the brave and self-sacrificing individuals who made it possible for Nehemiah's generation to live in and around Jerusalem again. Oh, church, it's important that we remember history, especially the history of the church. We need to be taught and learn about the lives of famous people in history that promoted the church of Christ and famous missionaries like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston and Adoniah Jepson and Jim Elliott and Amy Carmichael and Lottie Moon and more. We particularly should learn of those who lost their, lost their lives and performed great acts of heroism at the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that God's word would go forth. Church, we are members of the body of Christ that doesn't just stop right here in our church, but stretches clear back into the Old Testament patriarchs. We are genuine, and we should understand our past and be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ like so many have done before us. And we struggle to walk across the street and share the name of Jesus. So planning for the future, peeking at the past, lastly, preserving in the present. Okay, so Nehemiah 7 is more than just this long list of names. It's calling attention to these three features that must always be true of God's people. And they are three features that we need today just as much as they needed in 538 B.C. 
First, there's the demonstration of consecrated service. Raymond Brown writes this. He lists, uh, this list provides us with a fascinating sense of the various forms of service done throughout the centuries. Priests, Nehemiah 7, 39 through 42. Levites, verse 43. Singers, verse 44. Gatekeepers, verse 45. Temple servants, verses 46 through 56. Initially designated by King David to assist the Levites and the descendants of Solomon's servants, verses 57 through 60. Originally uh, appointed by David's son to supplement the work of the Levites. During his own administration, Nehemiah had seen people of various occupations employed in the work. Think about this. He'd seen laborers and builders and gatekeepers and teachers and administrators and caterers and servants and singing or singers, just to name a few. We must understand that the grace of God is multicolored. That's why we're told in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Second, we see an untiring, costly sanctification. Over 600 people could not prove that their families were descendants from Israel. Certain priests found themselves in a similar situation. They were labeled as unclean. Think about how difficult this must have been for Nehemiah, or how difficult it must have been for Nehemiah. Those banned from temple administrations, it raised this ugly specter of a form of racism. This coupled with a problem of interracial marriage from the decades that the Jews and their predecessors lived in Babylon would necessitate that Nehemiah once again would intervene some 13 years later with difficult solutions just as Ezra had previously done. The issue is an issue of holiness. The people of God had to realize who they were and why they were there. It's a prelude to chapter 8. The covenant-making ceremony as the law is read and expounded upon and the people respond with brokenness and re-consecration to the Lord. Thirdly, we find generous giving and stewardship. Ninety years on, the people needed to recall the generosity of their forefathers and giving to the work of temple of the temple reconstruction. And as we look at this list, I don't know if you paid attention to the list of how much gold was given and, and, and how much silver was given. And as we look at the list, it includes Nehemiah himself. And Nehemiah's amounts are high. And the purpose is meant to cause a sense of concern for the Jews and their own giving. Listen, the work of the Lord takes money. I don't know if you realize that, but it takes money to go forward. It took money then, and it takes money now. And if you're involved in the local church, then you are expected to support God's work in advancing the kingdom through his church. So are you giving? Let me rephrase that. Are you giving all that you can be giving? As we read here in Nehemiah. I conclude with this. Nehemiah is building an earthly city after the promises he found at the close of Jeremiah chapter 31, which I said towards the beginning of this message. 
This was just an earthly fulfillment. There is also a heavenly and spiritual fulfillment. God is building an eternal city for his people. In John's vision, when Christ returns, God's people will see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. It is the city that Abraham looked for. for uh, this is how the author of Hebrew writes it. Looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11.10. It is also this city that we should be looking for. What we do as a church is, is call people to join the true people of God by repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. In Nehemiah's day, if you wanted to join the people of God, you would have to separate yourself from the nations and become a Jew. Today, if you want to be a part of the people of God, you recognize that God is your creator, that God is holy, and that you have transgressed against a holy God. And for that, you deserve to pay the penalty for that sin, which is separation from the love of God forever. The good news is that because of what Jesus did, because of his death on the cross, and because of his resurrection from the dead, if you will turn from your sin, confessing it to God, and trust in Christ as your Savior, you will be saved. You can be a part of the people of God. That's what we do as a church. We call people to be a part of the people of God. But we want to be just as vigilant as Nehemiah was about determining who's in and who's out. And there's good news. If you're out, you can come in by repenting of your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn from the alternative explanations of the world and of your problems. Believe the Bible and join us in this great cause. The cause is better and bigger than building a wall around the city that lies in ruins. It's a great work of building up the body of Christ until everyone attains to the full stature of the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. That's what we're doing. Being conformed to the image of Christ. So if you hear this and you're not a Christian, join us in this great work. And if you are a believer, I call on you to persevere in this great work. Understand that positions of leadership must be appointed. Understand that leadership must be shared. Understand that personnel that is faithful to God and fearful of God must be assigned. Priorities must be affirmed because we are planning for the future. And as we're doing so, we're peeking at the past and we're persevering in the present. Don't be distracted by the enemy, church. Do not listen to the alternative explanations of this world. Do not back down from what you know God has called you to do. Oh, I pray that you and I would persevere together to the end. And that we would see others saved because of it. Will you pray with me?